All right, we began last week this series called The Portrait of God. Uh, we're talking about the various attributes in Scripture that the Bible uh, gives to the Lord, that, that is, characteristics that the Bible says are true about God. And we began last week just by considering how valuable it is to know God personally, not just intellectually or theoretically, but really personally and practically. Uh, God says it's better than being rich. It's better than being powerful and strong to know him. And it's better than being wise, if you can believe it. To know God's better than all those things put together. Now, why is that? Because of who he is. And so here in this passage, God reveals to Moses, as far as we know, for the first time, uh, we're not told that, that Moses had a really deep understanding of who God was, even though he came from a Hebrew background. Uh, where had he been raised? Egypt. Who, who had raised him? Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's very soon about to become the bad guy. That's who raised Moses. So the likelihood of him knowing a whole lot about God was very little. And yet in this encounter, he learns so much. And in, in really, in, in an instant, sort of becomes intimate with the Lord because God reveals to him his name. Do you like your name? Most people would say, yeah. Some people would say, no, nah, I wish they would have gone a different direction uh, with naming me. Do you know why you were named what you were named? You do. Chances are, I do too. For me, it's obvious. Is it obvious for you, Bob? It's obvious for me because I'm a junior. Why is it obvious for you? Your grandfather's name, right? So uh, there you go. So that's perfect. Grandfather, father together. Isn't that typically the way it is in our culture? You're, you're named either because of some heritage connection, your, your family tree, or even, this is true, you're named because it sounded good with the last name or the middle name that your parents had in mind, or maybe some combination of those two factors. We don't count names to be all that meaningful, like I don't know what the name Robert means in its etymology, and so or Bob. I can't tell you that. I don't really know what the name Stanley means in its etymology uh, or, or the background of its, its word family tree. That's not how we name people. But in Moses' day, that is how people named people. It's how they named places. And so when God tells Moses his name, he's not just telling him, hey, this sounds good. Or this is a tradition that I want you to keep to call me this. No, he's trying to communicate something heavy about the meaning of who he is. He's introducing Moses into his intimate circle. Names were a big deal. Now, if it's true even today, I mean, today, even though we name people based on sound and heritage, you get offended when people forget your name or when they spell it wrong. Right? Don't you? Imagine then what it was like to have your name misused if your name communicated something about the deepest part of who you are. Now you know maybe why God said, hey, top ten rules. Number three, don't take my name in vain. Don't misuse my name because my name carries with it my person. And so let's dive right in. We're going to look at what this name says about God and a few different things from the story, if you look at your bulletin. Uh, first, we're just going to look at the basic idea of God's existence. This name communicates something about the existence of God. 
Uh, but then secondly, we're going to look at the character of God that is revealed in the name. And then lastly, we're going to look at how knowing a God named this should change us. If God has named this for a reason, knowing him ought to change our lives forever, as it did with Moses and with Israel. All right, so first of all, let's think about the existence of God. Uh, A few different times here, uh, God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, you might remember in the New Testament, Jesus mentions this story when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, Jesus draws a lesson about God from that phrase. This is real deep cut Bible trivia, if you can come up with the answer to this. What point does Jesus draw out of the fact that he's called I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? That's right. He says, see, God is the God of the living and not the dead. He's drawing out the point that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob obviously weren't completely dead. Even though they were physically dead, Jesus says they still lived spiritually. Their souls still lived on because God in the passage about the bush Way after those three had already died, God says, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm still carrying on fellowship with the God. Uh, I'm still carrying on fellowship with people who are long since deceased from the earth. God is. Uh, That's one of the first things you should know about God, of course, that he is, that he exists Um, This scene begins when Moses is just walking along. If you go back to verse 1, he's keeping the flock of his father-in-law, these sheep and goats, in the wilderness around the Mount of God, which is called that because it will eventually become the site of the Ten Commandments. Right Now it's just Horeb. It's just a random mountain. But as he passes by that mountain, what does he see? Moses sees a bush burning, and it tells us there in verse 3 or verse 2, it was burning, yet it was not consumed. And the sight was so amazing that Moses says, I'm going to go look at that. I'm going to go see what's going on. So he goes to the side there, maybe to a little opening or a cave in the side of the mountain, and he starts to approach near to the bush. And God says, Moses, stop. Take off your shoes before you come any closer. Why should I take off my shoes, God? Because the place where you're standing is holy ground. I am revealing myself at this place through the phenomena of this bush that is burning but not consumed. I'm about to reveal myself through a second phenomena of of me speaking words audibly to you and so this is a holy place you cannot come with your shoes on take your shoes off and get ready to encounter the living God the God who is the God who is the God of the dead and of the living the God who's the God of the past the present and the future you're in his presence right now listen pay attention be careful now it's in that context that we get verse 13 Moses says, what is your name? Now, what do you think about that? Why does Moses ask God for his name? 
I can think of a lot of other questions, by the way. I don't know about you. If I'm seeing this bush burning and I have to take off my shoes and God's starting to speak, I think of a lot of other questions. Besides, what's your name? Why does he think that? Why does he think they're going to ask him that? There were, there were many gods in the world at that time. You know, Ra and all the rest. I don't know all the names of the Egyptian gods, really, except Ra. But there's Ra and, and all the other ones that maybe you know about. And Moses is trying to get to, how do, he's getting to basic questions. How do I know which one you are? How do I know that you are? And remember, names mean a lot. How do I know the content of your character that your name might reveal so that when the Israelites say, all right, you're saying God sent you, which God, who, who is he? Prove it. What am I going to say? And that's when God gives that very famous name, you know, the one that we'll talk about in just a second, that name, I am, that I am, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. Now, the Bible tells us that in order to please God, we have to first have faith. Y'all remember that? What is the first thing you have to have faith in to please God? That he, is. that he is. Just simple as that, that he exists. How do we know God exists? That's right. Actually, there are two different ways that we know God exists, and this passage is the perfect illustration of both. Moses knew it first because the bush was on fire and it was not being consumed. There was a physical, tangible, visible thing that was happening to reveal to Moses that God was showing up. God was really there. God was really alive. The bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. A miracle of sight was being performed before Moses' eyes. Now, it was C.S. Lewis who said that the miracles of the Bible really are, and I, I like this, I think it's true, the miracles of the Bible are really just God setting forth his normal operations in creation just in an especially inescapable way. It's when God sort of speeds up or intensifies the stuff he's already always doing. He's just making it obvious where you can't deny it anymore. So, for example, Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, well, God does that all the time. It just takes several years to do it normally. The water comes down and waters the grapes, and the grapes get big, and the grapes get picked and crushed, and the juice sits, and you know, and you get wine out of water. God's doing it every single day in creation and in providence. The miracle was just concentrating that activity of God in one tiny little moment so that everybody would go, wow. So that maybe they might also think, wait a minute, isn't the Lord the one, this God who revealed himself in this miracle, isn't he the one that gives me wine all the time? And so the bush on fire is really a way for God to stop Moses in his tracks and show him, Moses, I am the God of your fathers and I am the God of creation. Everything that exists really shows and manifests that I'm there. There would be nothing if God did not exist first. 
the nothing that came into existence out of nothing came into existence because there was someone when there was nothing. That makes sense? Uh, in fact, many of the philosophers have, have pointed this out, even ones who didn't believe in our God, like Aristotle. He said, look, if, if there is something, that means there must have always been something. Uh, are you ready to have your mind bent a little bit here? Let's do a little Aristotle. If there is something, there always had to be something. Because if at any time you had nothing, what can come from nothing? Nothing. But if there was always something, and we know that the somethings that we can see had a beginning, what must that mean about the something that preceded the somethings that have a beginning? Aristotle said that it must have been eternal. It must not have had a beginning. He called it the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause at the beginning of all the causes and all the effects of all of time. Did I bend your mind a little bit with that? I think he's right, even though maybe he expressed himself in an odd philosopher's way. He's right. And actually, I think it's something that most people in the history of the world and most people today recognize as just common sense truth. If the world is created, if the world exists, there must be a creator. If the world has a design, there must be a designer. How else could we make sense of the universe? I mean, why does math work all the time exactly in the same way? Why does the universe seem so fine-tuned for life? Why earth and not the other planets? Uh, what makes the best uh, sense of the earth having a beginning? Is it not what Aristotle said? What makes the best sense of the moral principles that every human being seems to have written inside of them that they cannot get out of them? What makes the best sense of miracles that have happened and been recorded throughout history? I mean, these are just things that many people with common sense look at and say there must be something beyond us. There must be a God who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In fact, the Bible says this. It's the fool that says in his heart there is no God. And when it says that in, in Psalm 14, it's not just trying to give an insult it's not just calling them name, atheist names, which I, I would not advise doing. Instead, it's making an actual statement, a factual statement, because in the Bible, a fool is not just you know, a silly person. A fool in the Bible is someone who does not regard God, who does not fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A fool lacks the fear of the Lord, lacks a willingness to listen to and be open to the manifestations of God's glory all around them. Thus, only a fool says in his or her heart, there is no God. God has made himself known in creation. Psalm 19 says, day after day speaks forth knowledge. Night after night pours forth wisdom about the Lord. Romans 1 says, God's divine attributes and eternal power are made known through the things that have been made. And Acts 17.28 says that in God we live and move and have our being. And most people recognize that. In fact, when Paul was saying in him we live and move and have our being, he was quoting a Roman pagan poet who first said that. It wasn't a 
Hebrew. It wasn't a Christian. It was a pagan who understood in God we live and move and have our being. God exists. But here is God stopping this shepherd, this Moses, who is on the run for murder, stopping him in his tracks by this burning bush saying, look at me. I'm here. I've always been here. I always will be here. But look at me. You can't ignore me. And then he begins to speak, which is the second way and the greatest way that we come to know God. There are some things about God that you can know from just looking at the world and hearing your own conscience speak to you. But there's also a whole lot about God you cannot know that way. For example, no one can be saved from their sins just by looking at the Grand Canyon. And neither will your conscience lead you to salvation from your sins by itself. Without a revelation from God in his word about the Lord Jesus. And so the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture came to make us wise to salvation. It was all breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. It tells us in Isaiah 59 that God's covenant with his people is a covenant to put his word in their mouth so that it would not depart from their mouth or from the mouths of their children or their children's children after them. And so here you have it. When God encounters Moses, he's showing him the two ways that everybody can get to know God. First of all, there's a physical phenomena that you can look at. Second of all, there's the word of God, which you can listen to. When Moses asked God, what is your name? He was saying, God, I see the bush burning, but I need to know more. I need to know the content of your character and not just the, the wildness of your physical, you know, your actual being and your actual existence. Get me deeper than that. Tell me who you are. Now, before we move on, and we will move on very shortly. Do you see any of the fool in you? I know I do in me. Right? This is not just me up here casting stones at atheists. Actually, I think there's a lot more practical atheists than there are actual atheists, right? You know what I mean by that? There's a lot more people that live as if there is no God, and there might as well not be a God, than say... Literally, I don't believe there's a God. And I find in my own life, you know, I will sometimes catch myself living as if God weren't really there. As if he weren't really real. I'm out there trying to do things on my own. I'm out there trying to make my own way. Don't we need God to do what he did for Moses? To remind us? In the, in the things that are created to remind us in the gifts that we've been given that he really is there. And then, of course, to speak to us in his word, to show us who he is so that we're not laboring under delusions. All right. First thing, we'll move on because I'm running out of time. Secondly, the name itself in verse 14. God says to Moses, when they ask you, say, I am who I am. Tell Israel, I am has sent me to you. And say to the people of Israel, the Lord. Notice there in verse 14, the Lord is capitalized. We spoke about that last week. That is the great four-letter name of God. Y-H-W-H. 
Yahweh, Jehovah. Uh, that name is derived from the Hebrew verb for to be. And so I am who I am and Yahweh sound very similar. They come from the same root word. God names himself, I am. Now this is the perfect name for God. Of course it is because it is his name. But if I might say so myself, it's the perfect name. It perfectly expresses in words what the burning bush expressed in physical you know, form. So talk with me here. What does the burning bush express? If you just look at it, what, what, do you, what do you think it means symbolically? A bush on fire but not being consumed. All powerful. Miraculous. Eternal, right? It, it never stops. Usually when you set a bush on fire, what happens? How long does the bush last? Very quickly, it's gone. This bush keeps on going, right? It never stops. Power Even over power over creation, yeah. He's able to stop the normal process of burning, to stay it for enough time for Moses to be able to look at it and see it's burning but not being consumed. It's amazing, isn't it? In fact, I would say, I am who I am perfectly encapsulates what's being communicated in that. He's the self-existent God. The God who needs no, nothing outside of himself to exist. Uh, we're not told that anybody was around to set the bush on fire. The bush was just on fire. Just like no one started God, no one gave birth to God, God always is, always was, always will be. No beginning. God has existed in the exact same form that he exists now, always. Just like that bush. It speaks to the all-sufficiency of his being. God needs nothing outside of himself to keep going. God has all that he needs within himself. It also stands for the inexhaustible sufficiency for us. God has in himself all that we need. So I am who I am perfectly expresses it. It shows us how we have to, when we think about God, we have to not think God is simply a bigger version of ourselves, which is what we're so tempted to do. He's like me, just bigger. We have to think God is a completely different category of being than us. We can't use our rules to judge him. We can't use our you know, concepts to define him. He gets to define him. And even when he does define himself in human language, it's always, it's never fully comprehending who he is. Uh, no matter, even if you were to digest everything the Bible says about God, you still wouldn't know all about God that could possibly be known. Wow, think about that. He's infinite. And even if you did digest everything in the Bible, there would still be something about God that was just beyond you. It was mysterious still. There would still be that sense of, I am standing on holy ground before a bush on fire that's not being consumed, and I have no words to describe it. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? Isn't that wonderful about God? Here's why I think it's wonderful. 
In order to think this way about God, you have to have a great deal of one thing that not many people have. Two guesses what the one thing is. And it has nothing to do with intelligence. Humility. Listen to A.W. Tozer. Y'all know him? He has a wonderful book called The Knowledge of the Holy. I recommend it. He says this. We tend to be disquieted by the thought of one who does not account to us for his being. Who is responsible to no one who is self-existent, self-dependent, and self-sufficient. To admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all of our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries, this requires a great deal of humility, more than most possess, so we tend to save face by thanking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him, And yet every time we try to do it, he eludes us. He shatters our previous understanding when we try to bring him down. He's reminding us from his word, from creation, nope, I am bigger than that. I'm bigger than you thought before. Try again. The more we grow in humility, which is what faith produces in us, and repentance, the more we grow in humility, the more we will actually be able to contain the thoughts about God that his scripture reveals. Because all these thoughts require us to see ourselves way, way, way beneath the Lord. Again, not just beneath him in degrees, but beneath him in category. We're not even of the same type as God. And he's not even of the same type as us. Think about this. There's a few things I would have you think about. Are you self-existing? How do you know you're not? You're dependent on so many things. This is a great week, by the way, Thanksgiving week, to stop and think, what all are you dependent on? And write it down so you can give thanks for it. It always surprises me when I do something like that because I don't even think about all the things. Are you perfect? That is, do you never need anything added to you or sometimes subtracted from you or changed about you? And yet God is both of those things. He's self-existing, dependent on no one, and he's complete. Nothing ever needs to be added to God. Nothing ever needs to be taken away. Nothing ever needs to be changed. Ever. Are you... Now, this this one's harder, okay? But are you the same thing as your character qualities... Okay, so let me, let me, this is important, actually. You're going to think this is really esoteric and kind of out there, but no, this is, real, this is a really important thing about the Lord that's different than us. 
If I say it about Clint, Clint is a loving man. Is that true? Ask Tina, okay. And what would Tina say? I think she would say yes. Now, could I also say, Clint is a loving man. I believe that's a true statement. But could I say, Clint is love. Clint is the very definition of love. Could I say that? Not, no, no, I couldn't. Same thing with righteousness, same thing with mercy, things, same thing with holiness. See, here's the thing about God. The theologians say God is simple. This is what they mean by that. God is not complex. He's not made up of parts. He's not one part love, one part mercy, one part justice. God is all the way love because he is love itself. He's the perfection of all love. You can't get any more loving than God. God is the definition of righteousness. You can't get any more righteous than God is. God is the definition of mercy and so forth. God is his attributes. He's not made up of parts. And he is not characterized by anything outside of himself. He is his own characterization. He's simple in that sense. I think that's a beautiful thought. Now, you might say, that doesn't help me at all, Stan. That is really, really out there and theoretical. It may be. But I I encourage you to think about that a little bit more. That when we say anything about God... What we're saying is God is the highest, most perfect, most complete definition of that thing that there ever could possibly be. And if that's true about one of his attributes, it's true about all of his attributes at the exact same time. I am who I am. I am who I am. I always am the very things I always am. Perfect, complete, simple, self-existing. So much different than us. Now, how do you think the Israelites responded when they asked Moses the name and Moses says, Yahweh, I am. Who sent you? I am sent me. What do you think they thought? Prove it? it? (laughs) Yeah, prove it. Which Moses did. Moses did. God gave him also signs and wonders just like Moses had received with the bush. He gave him other signs and wonders to prove it. Um, I'm sure they would have had their minds and hearts stretched, maybe as like yours is being tonight, as you think about these big things about God that are just that defy all of our sense of understanding. Which is why God, this is the last thing we want to talk about tonight, which is why God, after he reveals his name, tells us in verses 15 to 22 that the lives of his people are about to be upended because they're coming to know that he is the I am who I am. Their life cannot be the same anymore if they're going to know him because to know him is to be changed. Now, the Bible uh, gives several critiques of idolatry. It criticizes idolatry in different ways. One way, for example, is how crazy can you be to worship something that your own hands have made? That's one way that it critiques idolatry. Here's another way. 
those who worship idols become like them. Now, this is one of my favorite critiques of idolatry. You create a statue of something to worship it. You create ears. You put eyes. You put a mouth, a nose, legs, arms. Maybe you make really strong arms, hulking arms to your God. What can it see? You made the eyes. What, what can it see? You made the ears. What can it hear? You made those big arms. What can it do for you? What, what situations can it pull you out of? None. In fact, it says, in fact, it says, if you worship a God like that, who has appearance but no reality, you will yourself become like the gods you worship. You'll become appearance with no reality. You'll become seeing but unable to see. Hearing but unable to hear. Legs but unable to walk. A mouth but unable to speak. You'll become foolish if you worship foolish things. Now, if that's true, this passage is saying the reverse is true. If you worship the living God, the I am who I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will become also like him. Not in the sense that you will become self-existent and all those big things that we just talked about, but in the sense that you will share in those attributes that he has that are able to be shared. Love and mercy and joy and peace and all the things that the Bible says we can have a part of. You will become those things. In fact, God says to Moses, Israel will be set free. They'll no longer be enslaved. They'll be brought out of Egypt. They'll remember me and they'll remember my name forever. And they'll be put into a land flowing with milk and honey where they can serve me or worship me forever in the way that I call them to. Set free. Their minds will be renewed so that they remember who I've said that I am. And they will begin to walk in keeping with what they remember. They will serve me in the new land that I give them. And I want to tell you the same thing is true today. When you come to know the living God, the God who is greater than you, the God who made you, you cannot but have a life change. The old life that was slavery, which is not in Egypt, but is in the slavery of sin, the slavery of self-love, and the slavery of death, will now be replaced, if you'll walk with God, with self-denial and life everlasting and the forgiveness of sins and the fruit of the Holy Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control those things will become yours if you'll learn how to live out your freedom by remembering Him calling to mind what His name is look at verse 15 Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, by this name, I am to be remembered 
throughout all my generations, throughout all your generations. Go and gather the people. I will deliver them out and I will take them to a land flowing with honey and they will worship me. Now think about that. What this passage is calling us to do is to remember God's name as he's revealed it, which means something more than just remembering the sound of the word, Yahweh, or the Lord. It means remembering what the name means about God, which is that your God is the fountain of all that is good. Your God is the fountain of all life. Your God has everything in himself that you will ever need. And your God has promised to share those things with you as you need them. Now here we have a God who, has, who doesn't have eyes and yet he sees. You see that? He doesn't have ears and yet he hears. He doesn't have an arm, but yet he's able to lift us out of any situation. What does that mean? That means I do not have to serve myself anymore. I do not have to chase things that are lifeless and meaningless anymore. I do not have to make up the rules for my life on my own anymore or let other people do it for me. I don't have to be a practical atheist anymore. Instead, I can deny myself, which is what one writer, he says, self-denial is the great letter in the alphabet of religion. It's the A. It's where it starts. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I can deny myself and come into an intimate knowledge of the God who created all things and reveals himself through those things. And the God who speaks in his word to tell me his intimate personal name. Now we as Christians have it even better. Because Moses knew the intimate name of God, Yahweh. But we have even more intimate details about his name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That was a a name that Moses didn't know. I'm not saying it wasn't true about God then. It always was true about God. But Moses didn't know it because God didn't tell him. But God told us that. Here's another name Moses didn't know. He knew the person, but he didn't know the name. Jesus Christ. And we can come to know that name. And remember that name. And and again, by remember, I don't just mean, okay, I remember. Jesus, 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 Jesus. No. I mean, remember the meaning. He saves his people from their sins. He's the Messiah. He's, he's He's the promised one. He's my righteousness. He's my Savior. He's my Lord and King, seated on the throne. He's the fountain of all good, so that I don't have to go looking for it anywhere else. I can come to Jesus and find in Jesus all that I'll ever need truly, in fullest measure, so that I'll be fully satisfied forever. Now, let's step back for a minute. When Moses saw the bush on fire, do you think he was able to guess at all that would follow? I mean, stop and think about that for a minute. What do you think at first he thought was going to happen when he turned aside to see this thing, as he says? 
versus what actually did unfold after that. And it's a great illustration, really, I think, of our lives. You know, when we first come to an awareness of God, and I think, again, every human being has an awareness of God. It's just whether they suppress it or not. We all have an awareness. We never know when we first get that awareness of God. We never know what we're in for. We always think it's going to be different than it turns out being. We always think it's going to be more manageable, easier, more understandable, more to our liking and to our tastes. But the more we turn aside and let God speak and let God be God, the more we get surprised and gloriously confounded by God. And I want to tell you, that's the adventure not only of life, but that's the adventure of eternity. Somehow, when we're in heaven for 10,000 years, we'll still be learning about the I am who I am. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow. Isn't that cool? Moses today is still learning about his God. Wow. What an attribute it is. The existence of the self-existing God. God. 